Birthday Biography Podcast. I'm Hannah Mira, and this is a podcast that shines a spotlight on a person who was born on this day at some point in history, somewhere in the world, who made a positive, lasting impact. Today, July 1st, we are going to talk about Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis, the father of infection control. So Dr. Semmelweis had a lot of nicknames, and they tell a snapshot of his life and his work. He was called the father of infection control. He was called the savior of mothers, the champion of hand washing. And looking at these honorifics, you'd probably be inclined to applaud him. Like, you saved the lives of mothers? Good for you. You told people to wash their hands? Bravo. Yet it was these exact facts that got him murdered. So how exactly do we go from antiseptic pioneer slash life-saving OBGYN to public enemy number one and homicide victim? I shall explain. So our Ignaz was born in Hungary, in an area that today is part of Budapest, but at the time of his birth in 1818, it was still just called Buda. So Ignaz was the fifth of 10 born to wealthy grocer and spice importer Joseph Semmelweis and his wife, Therese Muller. By 1837, Ignaz was studying law at the University of Vienna, and then he switched over to medicine for reasons that have never been documented. And by 1844, he was officially a licensed physician. Now, back then, the most prestigious post that you could obtain was internal medicine, and one of the least desirable was obstetrics. Delivering babies was considered work for midwives and crappy doctors. So when Ignaz was unable to get a job in internal medicine due to the fact that he was a Hungarian Jew trying to start a practice in Vienna, he sort of fell back onto obstetrics. So July 1st, 1846, he starts his obstetrics job at Vienna General Hospital in a position that today would be compared to a chief resident. Dr. Semmelweis was stepping into a very inauspicious position at a very auspicious time in medicine. Considered by many to be the dawn of the golden age of the physician scientist, doctors were beginning to be expected more and more to have scientific training. And I realize how now that just sounds hilarious because today you have to go to school for like 34 years to be a doctor. But up until the mid to late 1800s, doctors wrote a lot of ailments and maladies off as the result of either, and I'm really simplifying here, bad air, evil spirits, or some unspecified impurity of the bowel. Most treatment plans were laxatives, bloodletting, or religion. So Finding the scientific cause for a complaint was barely starting to vogue at this point, and figuring out the bacterial or the viral genesis of a contagious illness wouldn't even really be a thing until the popularization of germ theory by Louis Pasteur in the 1860s and 70s. But being a recent medical school graduate, Dr. Semmelweis would have been privy to at least some lecture and discussion on these new ways of thinking about illness. Yet the concept of antiseptics, contagions, infectious diseases, germ theory, they were all a gleam in the eyes of scientific and medical visionaries. Ignaz would be one of them, indeed arguably the first, but he would not survive the public pushback long enough to see the full fruits of his thankless labor. So Ignaz was obviously assigned to the maternity section of Vienna General Hospital. And let's talk for a second about these maternity hospitals that he was working in. Maternity hostel might actually be a more accurate title. These clinics had been created all over Europe, not 
so much to assist women with the birth of their babies, but to prevent them from murdering the babies. Birth control was not available in a manner that was accessible, reliable, and safe. Back alley abortions were basically playing Russian roulette with your own life, and there was no functioning social services to help an impoverished single mother with her baby. As a result, many homeless women, unwed teens, and prostitutes gave birth and they ended up either smothering or drowning or abandoning their newborns soon after. So these maternity clinics created a sort of a barter system in which they would offer care and shelter for the babies. And in exchange, mom had to agree to be a human guinea pig for doctors and midwives in training. Aside from this rather exploitative transfer of services and bodies, there was another major issue at maternity hospitals, and that was childbed fever. This is a broad term for any post-childbirth or post-miscarriage infection of the reproductive organs. It usually sets in within 24 hours of delivery, starts with chills, abdominal pain, high fever, and then it just becomes a full-body sepsis infection, and you just plummet pretty rapidly towards death. And thanks to the fact that antibiotics had not yet been invented, it was about 99% fatal. So Vienna General Hospital at the time had two clinics, first clinic and second clinic, as they were creatively called, and they each had a very distinct reputation. The first clinic was rampant with childbed fever. One out of every 10 women died of childbed fever there. Having a baby could very well be a death sentence for a mother. The second clinic also had childbed fever deaths, but fewer, usually under 4% of the women delivering there ended up with it. And word obviously got around and women who came to the hospital wanted to have their baby in the second clinic. However, the clinics were open on alternate days. So depending on when you went into labor, your chances of surviving the birth of your child were quite variable. Women who arrived in labor on the days that the first clinic was open would often fall to their knees in the streets, begging the hospital to send them to the second clinic. It was not uncommon for many women to just choose to give birth in the street instead, rather than take their chances at the first clinic. Yet for some reason, these women who were literally giving birth in the streets were getting far less childbed fever than those delivering at the first clinic. Dr. Semmelweis pondered, to me, it appeared logical that patients who experienced street birth would become ill, at least as frequently as those who delivered in the clinic. What protected those who delivered outside the clinic from these destructive, unknown endemic influences? So this was the mess that Dr. Semmelweis was walking into, and he was stumped. Why the difference? The only noticeable discrepancy between the two clinics was that the first clinic was staffed by all male medical students and doctors, while the second clinic was staffed only by female midwives. So what about this seemingly slight variation in staffing was causing women to die at almost a five times higher rate at the first clinic? So Dr. Semmelweis approached this quandary like a man of science. He tried to identify anything that was different, remove it, and note the change. First, he noticed that in the first clinic, women delivered on their backs, while in the second clinic, they delivered on their sides. So he ordered women to deliver on their sides at the first clinic, and there was no change in mortality. Next, he noticed that whenever a woman died, a priest would walk down the hallway to the tune of a ringing bell. 
So Dr. Semmelweis hypothesized that the sound of the bell had a sort of tragic Pavlovian effect on the laboring women, and they fell ill with sadness and sympathy and died. So he booted the priest and his bell and waited. Nothing changed. At this point, he was just straight up miserable and frustrated. Why couldn't he solve this problem? So he took a brief vacation to Venice to rest and regather his thoughts. He returned from his peaceful holiday to the tragic news that his friend and colleague, pathologist and professor of forensic medicine, Dr. Jacob Kuletska, had died. Jacob had been performing an autopsy on a woman who had died of childbed fever, and in the process, he had cut his own finger with a scalpel. Within a day, he was ill, he declined very rapidly, and he died on March 13, 1847, at the age of 43. So Ignaz poured over the autopsy findings of Jacob, and he was shocked at what he found. Jacob had died from the same thing that the woman he was autopsying had died of. Somehow, he had contracted what she had when he sliced his finger on the scalpel. This was a brand new revelation. Childbed fever wasn't just something women got in childbirth. It could be passed to anyone else in the entire hospital. And this, of course, still left the original question, why were more women dying of childbed fever at the clinic run by doctors than at the clinic run by midwives? And the answer was literally in front of Ignaz in the cold, hardened corpse of his friend. Doctors did autopsies. Midwives did not. Upon examining the daily schedule at the first clinic, Ignaz realized that the doctors were performing autopsies and deathbed examinations in the mornings on any mother that had died of childbed fever the day before, and then heading straight into the clinics to deliver baby after baby without washing their hands once. Childbed fever was not caused by bad air or malicious spirit. It was caused by tiny corpse particles, these microscopic cadaverous remnants traveling from dead infected body to live women in birth over and over again throughout the day on the filthy hands of doctors. At clinic number two, the midwives touched no corpses. So Dr. Semmelweis made an announcement to his staff at both clinics, and he said, Everyone, you have to wash your hands and tools between each patient, not only with soap, but also with chlorine. Now, he chose chlorine because he thought the smell would help cover up the corpse smell, but he didn't know at the time that chlorine was actually the most effective disinfectant that they had at their disposal at that time. So both clinics institute these policies, and the maternal death rates plummet. In 1842 to 1843, the maternal death rate at the first clinic was over 30%. Three out of every 10 women or more died after having their kids. After Ignaz instituted his hand and tool washing policy in April of 1847, the rate dropped to 2%, from 30 to 2% after just one small change. So one would imagine at this point that the medical profession would all be clapping him on the back, right? Wrong. Ignaz was already not popular due to the fact that he was Hungarian and a Jew. And now he was pointing out something that the doctors were doing that was killing their patients, and the physicians' big fluffy egos could not take the heat. Adding to the fact that Ignaz was also a cantankerous and a pretty stubborn guy, didn't exactly make him Miss Queen of Popularity. So his colleagues who supported his findings urged him to publish. They're like, this is great news, but he stubbornly refused for over a decade. 
His colleagues who did not support him, and they were much more numerous, decried his lunatic assertions as the slanderous ravings of a Jew. Adding to this growing snowball of discontent was the fact that Ignaz had no problem publicly calling out the doctors who refused to wash their hands and their tools, and directly blaming them for their patients' infection-related deaths. The more he protested, the more the doctors and the students at the hospitals pushed back, and finally, everyone just refused to wash their hands and scalpels, and Ignaz was fired from the hospital. He kept trying to fight the good fight. He traveled around Europe and he lectured about the importance of hand washing and clean instruments, but he was a loud Jew with a weird idea. No one had time for him. And the longer his peers ignored him, the more outraged he became. He knew he was right. He knew how to save lives, but no one wanted to listen to him. Finally, the stress and the isolation and the frustration began to take its toll. He became more and more angry and erratic and his behavior started to kind of concern those around him. Historians are not exactly in agreement as to what underlying mental illness was plaguing him. There are some theories that he had contracted syphilis while performing an operation years before, and it had now reached the neurosyphilis stage. Some hypothesize that he had undiagnosed bipolar disorder, and still others point to early onset Alzheimer's. Ignaz's wife, Maria, and the mother of their five children, uh, became increasingly concerned about his behavior. He sunk into really deep depressions. He couldn't stop talking about childbed fever ever. He penned dozens of open letters to all the big shot obstetricians in Europe, all dripping with desperation and rage and hopelessness. He pleaded with them to take his advice to reduce maternal deaths, but he kind of alternated these heart-wrenching requests with a lot of vicious name-calling and threats. He spent a lot of time away from his kids, some of his time was spent in the company of a prostitute, and his drinking became excessive. Finally, in 1865, Dr. Janos Balasa, one of the most prominent and respected physicians in Hungary, wrote up the paperwork, committing Ignaz to a mental institution. On July 30th, Dr. Ferdinand Ritter von Hebra, a renowned dermatologist and the editor of a famous Austrian medical journal who had first published Ignaz's findings, lured the unsuspecting Ignaz to a Viennese insane asylum under the pretense of inspecting a new clinic. It didn't take Ignaz long, though, to figure out what was going on, and when he tried to walk out, the guards captured him, beat him senseless, and wrapped him in a straitjacket. He was thrown into a cold cell, alternatively being doused in freezing showers and being forced to drink castor oil while sepsis from the beating raged through his body. Finally, two weeks after the brutal assault, his body succumbed to infection, and Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis died alone in the insane asylum at the age of only 47. The result of his autopsy? Blood poisoning due to sepsis, also known as widespread infection. He was buried two days after his death before a handful of people. There was minimal mention of his death among the medical community. The small maternity clinic that he had recently been put in charge of was passed on to another doctor who got rid of all of Ignaz's cleanliness protocols, and the rate of maternal deaths at that clinic increased sixfold. His work and his legacy went dark for a few decades. Aside from some doctors in Germany who were seeing success with Ignaz's methods, there wasn't anyone really continuing the dialogue about his discovery and his theories. 
Dr. Gustav Adolf Michalis, an obstetrician in Germany, was very keen about Ignaz's findings until Gustav realized that he had accidentally killed a female relative, either a niece or a cousin, when he delivered her baby without washing his hands, thereby giving her the childbed fever that she ended up dying of. And this grief was too much, and Gustav killed himself at the age of 50. So there really wasn't anyone practicing this antiseptic approach, save for a few obstetricians in Germany. And that is until about 20 years after the killing of Ignaz, when Dr. Louis Pasteur announced his findings in regard to germ theory, and suddenly the work of Ignaz became legitimate. Today, we have a number of lasting monuments and testaments to his work. In terms of structures, there are two Semmelweis hospitals, both in Hungary, a university, a museum, and a women's clinic named after him. His face has been on Austrian currency and Hungarian stamps. There have been seven movies made about his life, including the 1938 That Mothers Might Live, an Academy Award-winning Hollywood one-reeler starring Shepard Studrick as Ignaz, directed by Fred Zinnemann, who went on to direct High Noon uh, later on in his life. Ignaz's life itself has been the subject of over a dozen plays and works of literature. Ignaz was also a personal hero of Kurt Vonnegut's, just FYI. But perhaps the most curious yet fitting, the most lasting yet tragic, the most appropriate posthumous application of his name is that of the Semmelweis effect, a human behavior phenomenon in which the mind creates a knee-jerk rejection of a new concept because it goes against entrenched beliefs. My sources today were Wikipedia, PBS, and NPR. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis. Please join me on July 22nd when we talk about Mildred Loving, the woman who overturned the interracial marriage ban. See you then.